Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, before I get started here, I uh, also want to add my thanks for Emma James and uh, for her great witness and uh, love and service to us over the years here at St. Andrew, along with her late husband, Eddie, as we say farewell and Godspeed to her. And I also want to say a happy 98th birthday today to my friend Lauren Hellickson. There he is. Founder of the Lord's Truck Ministry, which continues uh, to flourish to this very day, veteran of World War II, veteran of the cross, father figure to me, friend to so many of us here, and uh, a model of Christian service. And uh, Lauren, when I first met you, you were 73, <laughs> and I was 37, and now you're 98, and I'm happy to be here. <laughs> I wish you a happy birthday with our great love from your uh, church family. Uh, well, today I want to talk with you a little bit about the passage you heard a few moments ago from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which is to say, uh, to the church that existed in the ancient city of Ephesus, which was about 800 miles east of Rome, from which Paul wrote that letter. Uh, the ruins of which are located uh, to this day in northwestern modern-day Turkey near the uh, coast of the Aegean Sea, and that at the time of St. Paul had a population of about a quarter of a million people, including a magnificent uh, amphitheater, which is still there and has seating, uh, for about 25,000 people. And this is one of the outstanding images of Ephesus uh, that I took with me after having visited there a few years ago because St. Paul himself actually preached at this theater and he brought the message of Jesus to this city where false gods, and including one in particular, were worshipped and uh, Images of those false gods were sold at a great profit by the, the business people in Ephesus. Uh, the other image of Ephesus that I took with me is this one. <laughs> this is from a market just outside of Ephesus today and where they sell uh, images not of false gods, but they sell false watches. So if you ever go to Ephesus, you might want to check out some genuine fake watches, pick up one for one of your friends. <laughs> Having said that, I want you to move your thoughts of Ephesus to the side for just a moment and fly with me back through time, back to America and to June 16, 1858, when a thousand people gathered in Springfield, Illinois for the Republican State Convention. And at five o'clock that afternoon, they elected a man by the name of Abraham Lincoln to serve as their delegate, their candidate for the United States Senate. Three hours later, Abraham Lincoln stood up and addressed the assembly at the end of its proceedings and at the beginning of a campaign that would actually prove to be unsuccessful. Though his speech that night included the famous words, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Now, Lincoln was referring uh, to the American institution of slavery, and he went on uh, to say that America cannot be half slave and half free. It will become all of one thing, or it will become all of another. Uh, and even his closest friends uh, contended that uh, those words were too provocative for uh, the occasion, though that speech 
known as the House Divided Speech, became one of the most prolific of his career, next to the Gettysburg Address and his second uh, inaugural. Uh, but his law partner even said that while Lincoln's words were uh, morally courageous, they were politically suicidal. But Lincoln was adamant, and he went with his speech as it was written, and sure enough, he lost his election to uh, the Senate. But years later, that same law partner declared that while that speech, the House-divided speech, cost Lincoln the Senate, it later made him President of the United States. Also, the people that heard that speech that night in Springfield would have known, unlike many people today who prescribe or ascribe these words to Abraham Lincoln, that where they originally first and foremost came from was from the Lord Jesus Christ himself in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now the reason I share that with you is that just as Abraham Lincoln, our former president, used the image of, of a house to describe our country, St. Paul in his letter to the Ephesians uses the image of a house or a household to describe the church in significant detail that it is built on the solid foundation of apostles and prophets, their teaching, that Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is fit together, on whom the house is built and it grows up into a holy temple and a dwelling place for God. So you have all these construction images, complete with building materials, the, the foundation, the, the structure, the cornerstone, the, the, the house, the holy temple and dwelling place for God. And yet, even though Paul never quotes Jesus in his letter to the Ephesians, at least not in that way, he also knows that there were things that were threatening the Ephesian church in terms of its stability, in terms of its strength and its power and its growth into that holy temple. And they are issues that threaten the church even to this day, not to mention the rest of the world that we live in. And so he addresses that issue, which I refer to as the issue of us and them, us and them. And what I mean by that is that often when St. Paul would go into a city and start a church in one of his missionary journeys, he would do it by going into the synagogue of that city. And he would preach the message of Jesus as the promised Messiah of Israel. And then those who came to believe would follow him out of the synagogue and they would become the founders of a new Christian church, which was therefore made up predominantly of Jewish Christians. Although there were also Gentiles or non-Jewish Christians who would come into the church because of their faith in Christ through a different path, and yet were often looked upon as kind of second-class citizens because, you know, they didn't come to know Jesus as the promised Messiah of Israel. Well, it turns out that in the Ephesian church, it was just the reverse, where the Gentiles were actually in the majority of the congregation at Ephesus, and the Jewish Christians were in the minority, and they were often looked down upon, not only because they were in the minority, but because many of them were still holding on to the old traditions and customs and, and, and habits uh, of their faith, when at this point it's just all about Jesus. 
and not about our traditions or our rituals and our performance and our past. And so you had this tension between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And it's a tension uh, that exists to this very day in the church and outside the church with respect to, you know, who's in the majority? Who's in the minority? You know, who has the upper hand? Who's ha who is the outcast? Who's the insider? Who's the outsider? Furthermore, we know from the book of Acts that uh, about five years before all of this is taking place, when Paul was actually in Ephesus personally, there was a riot that broke out at that very theater that you were looking at just a moment ago when the business community of Ephesus became up in arms because the more Paul preached the message of Jesus, the more people came to believe in Christ, the worse their business got. And they were losing money. And so the us and them dynamic began to play itself out, not just inside the church, but also outside the church, between the believers and the non-believers, inside the church, between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, with the Jewish Christians saying, you know, we may be in the minority, but hey, we knew Jesus first. And the Gentile Christians saying to the Jewish Christians, hey, get over it. It's not about how long you've known him. It's about who he is in your life. And so, well, as I said, Paul doesn't quote Jesus verbatim. He does know what Abraham Lincoln knew, what we all know, that a house divided against itself cannot stand. It will fail unless it's built on the solid foundation of God's promises revealed in apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone in whom everything, everybody, the whole structure is fit together and it is built up into this holy temple, this household fit as a dwelling place for God. And that's the context for the first part of the passage uh, that was read uh, just a moment ago where Paul writes to the Ephesians and he appeals to them. First to the Gentiles, saying in effect to them, you know, you, you got to remember, there was a time when you didn't even know Jesus. And so you shouldn't get carried away with the fact that you're the majority in the church today. And to the Jewish Christians, he says, you know, you may have known Jesus as the promised Messiah of Israel, but you shouldn't get carried away with your paternalism around that. Because he's abolished the law and its ordinances. And it's just all about his grace. And then he tells both groups that, that in Christ, in the blood of the Lamb, the two groups have been made into one. And what he calls one new humanity, including the Gentiles, who were, he refers to as those who were far off, and then the Jewish Christians, who he refers to as those who were near. That's what those uh, words and, and terms mean. And he says, in Christ, you are one new humanity. The dividing wall has been broken down because in the family of God, there is no us and them. In the family of God, there is only us.
no matter what our path may be. And with that, he then, by way of illustration, transitions into the whole construction and building materials and the foundation and the a cornerstone and, and all the rest. And the question for us today is what would it be like if we actually lived that way? What would it be like if we actually looked at each other around the, this new reordering of relationships to which St. Paul calls us in his letter to the Ephesians, to which God himself calls us in the context of the gospel. You know, how would my life, my relationships, my opinions, my decisions, my church, my world be different if I was able to look at everybody, though they have come maybe from a different path, bringing a different tradition, merging from a different kind of a loss, even people who may from time to time drive me crazy with their opinions. And yet I look at them, look at them and I say, you know, Lord, you love them, so I have to. Not because it's easy, but because that's my sister, that's my brother in this one new humanity. What would it be like if we all practiced that in our relationships, not just inside the church, but also outside the church? A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, looking for something in a file drawer in my uh, office, and I ran into uh, a file from the building and uh, design and construction of this a church facility at uh, New Hampshire Avenue and Norwood Road, uh, which is, you know, 16 years old. Uh, the building is 13 years old, but uh, uh, the file is much older than that, which means I should clean out my files. But anyway, uh, I was feeling a little nostalgic, so I flipped through it, and I found a document uh, that our architects asked me uh, to write. Uh, before any of this was ever designed, uh, describing you know, how I saw this community of faith and what I, as the incumbent pastor at the time, envisioned uh, for this new place of uh, worship. And so in the context of Paul's imagery of foundations and cornerstones and uh, the building and construction of uh, the church, I'd like to share uh, just some of what I wrote 16 years ago, give or take. Point one. The Lutheran Church of St. Andrew seeks to make the presence of Jesus known to a hurting world in a variety of ways so that more people are drawn to the community of faith. Therefore, I envision a church building that will evoke thoughts, feelings, and experiences of God's presence and of a Christian community for all who enter or pass by so that they are more likely to be attracted to our life and ministry. Point two, the Lutheran Church of St. Andrew is known for diversity, variety, and inclusivity in its life and ministry. Therefore, I envision a church building that will support a variety of spiritual, educational, and worship experiences in an atmosphere of welcome and celebration. Point three, the Lutheran Church of St. Andrew is known as a center of life in its community. Therefore, I envision a church building that can also function as a theater, a concert hall, and a meeting place that can serve as a magnet for service, celebration, and recreation for all people. Point four, 
The Lutheran Church of St. Andrew values relationships among people. Therefore, I envision a church building that encourages relationships in both large and small group settings. Point five, Lutheran Church of St. Andrew is known as a church that embraces opportunity for change for the sake of God's unchanging mission to the world. Therefore, I envision a church building that provides flexibility and responsiveness to the moving scene of 21st century American church life. And, and there was a little bit more to it, but I think you get the idea. And, and we may not have checked all those boxes, and certainly people way smarter than me had all kinds of better and wonderful ideas. But it does help to explain our effort, at least, to create and build up a church building that reflects the household of faith. And that's why we got that large commons out there, which is bigger in size than a lot of older churches for our large group uh, fellowship. That's why we have that nice family room with a fireplace in it for more intimate settings. That's why there's the common cup down in the lower level where people make the coffee. I even had a macchiato down there last week. And they fellowship throughout the course of the week along with a fitness center and a great room with a basketball court that you cover up with carpet. Uh, to spruce it up for other kinds of occasions. That's why it was uh, decided that we would position this building on this property so that the front door actually faces the world rather than the solid chancel wall and having it be turned uh, all the way around. And, and that is why at the center of the whole thing is this sanctuary in the middle of it so that this would be a place where God is worshipped and praised and where all people have a place and a welcome, where there is no us and them. There's just us in the family of God. Whatever your past, whatever your tradition, whatever your loss, whatever your experience might be, built to last forever on the foundation of God's promises through apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone of your life where we're all fit together, where we grow up into a holy temple, a dwelling place fit for God and for the comfort and the hope and the joy of the world. Abraham Lincoln, at the end of his House Divided speech in 1858, actually ended on a very optimistic note. He said to the assembly, we shall not fail if we stand firm. We shall not fail. And so may that be said not only of our country, but even more importantly, of the church, of our church, of every church, in every place as people who are built to last on the promises of God for the joy and the hope of those who have yet to join us. May you and I be the kind of church that God designed and that he envisioned in St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.